0: Welcome to Mike'd Up with Chiro Up Podcast, where I'm your host Brandon Steele, and I'm your co-host Tim Bertelsman, and you're tuning into the one and only evidence-based podcast made by chiropractors and for chiropractors.
1: Here's how it works: We'll have a new clinical topic that we dive into each month, and you'll leave with practical skills that you can apply right away.
0: Well, that's contingent on who's giving the advice, and you'll want to take mine.
1: <laughs> Let's dive in. Welcome to the next episode of
0: Mike'd Up with Chiro Up with Tim and Brandon. Really, it should just be Brandon. No, that's it. It should just be brand Yeah, new.
1: that'd be a good way to cut down on viewers. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this
0: is going to be a good one. We have a couple topics that really affect all of us. You know, a lot of times we'll go through the clinical things, a specific diagnosis, a specific thing, and this one is going to be interesting because controversy awaits. Dr. Bertelsmann woke up at 4.30 this morning just to review the show notes And he has changed a lot of stuff in here. So I'm excited to see uh, where this podcast goes. But realistically, if you're looking for some opinions and some facts surrounding spinal curves, spinal degenerate joint changes, and the things that every chiropractor needs to hear, this is going to be a good one. The questions that you get from your patients, do hyperlordosis, hyperkyphosis, do these things matter? Does DJD matter? Does arthritis cause pain? Can you treat arthritis? How many times, Tim, have you heard that in the last week?
1: Oh, it's every day. You know, somebody comes in with an x-ray report and they're sure they're doomed because they have degeneration or they've lost their curve. They have a military neck. And what I'm excited about is to hear what your answers are, because I know some of our opinions vary a little bit. We'll talk about our opinions. More importantly, we'll talk about what the research says. And I can't wait to dive in. Well, let me save you some of the suspense that we're going to get through all
0: those questions. Um, However, you're going to hear some answers and some reasons behind these questions that you may not suspect. But before we dive into that, if you are listening on your phone on Spotify and you have a topic, please go ahead and drop that in the comments. Otherwise, please follow this podcast um, and give us some feedback. Uh, (laughs) Tim and I don't do this for fun. Well, maybe it's fun for you. (laughs) I couldn't think of anything more fun. Uh, no, we, we do it for the exact reason we're doing this podcast, is I wrote a blog that I kind of want to change my mind on. And uh, not that I'm wishy-washy. Um, however, there's new evidence, there's new information. And I'd like to bring a little conversation uh, to the conversation that is not black and white and there is some gray in there so let's get started with this let's uh, first dive into the random facts of the day um tim what do you have for us
1: speaking of getting up at 4 30 in the morning a study uh, from sleep medicine review uh, by gardner talked about what caffeine does to our sleep time that we used to think, you know, don't drink a cup of coffee or a Mountain Dew before bedtime. But this said that the half-life actually is going to impact your sleep for 8.8 hours. So we shouldn't be drinking any caffeine, really, beyond early afternoon. And if you turn that into a highly caffeinated beverage, like one of the pre-workout supplements or, a, you know, an energy drink, then you might be looking at really half a day. Otherwise, your sleep is going to be impacted. There's a great book. It's by Matthew Walker called Why We Sleep. And uh, I read this book, and it was really inspiring about all the things that happen. The number of accidents in our lives go up dramatically, multiple fold, between six hours of sleep and eight hours of sleep. Just that difference of two hours makes you much more likely to have an accident if you're not getting enough sleep. So CairoUp has created a couple of infographics. They're in our forms library. If you go to the forms library, you can check out Healthy Sleep. It'll give you recommendations for your patients about their bed, their pillow, and their habits, especially the foods, including the new data from caffeine what their nighttime sleep temperature should be, which we know it should be a lot cooler than what you think it should, and what a schedule means to our ability to sleep consistently. There's also a mattress infographic. It's called Mattress Advice, and I love this one. It's one of my favorite ones. It saves me lots of time. We did a study asking chiropractors, how long is your typical mattress discussion? You probably dread it. I know I did because it's three to five minutes on average. And unfortunately, there's no solid recommendation because everybody's different. Well, this infographic took 200 DCs worth of knowledge and information, boiled it down into recommendations that fit on two pages. You pop it to your patient and save yourself three to five minutes. If you do nothing else from this podcast, download the mattress advice, and you'll be able to save time next time your patient says, so doc, what type of mattress should I get?
0: What kind of accidents are we talking about with sleep?
1: Auto accidents. Uh, I'm going to talk about a
0: a paper from um, uh, JMPT. Uh, It just came out, I think it was two or three months ago. And it talked about trigger points. And the reason I like this paper, it was by Carol. And so many chiros and manual therapists and PTs find trigger points. And it's uh, assumed maybe that these are tight um, uh, spots in the muscle that we need to use manipulation, manual therapy, and stretching to get to go away. And while that may be true, And while this paper found that to be true, it also found that these are also muscles that need to be strengthened. So whenever you find a trigger point, and the paper found that uh, in the presence of active or latent gluteus medius trigger points, it was associated with hip weakness. And that there's no association between these trigger points and hip passive range of motion. So these are not just tight muscles that you're supposed to stretch away. Yes, we need to normalize that tissue using our manual therapy and manipulation. However, don't forget that these patients need strengthening. And for long-term relief, think load, load, load. Uh, how can you load that tissue to get it stronger? So uh, two papers that I thought were interesting just coming out this year. Remember, if you are looking for the most up-to-date research, check out that research review section. It is awesome. It is jam-packed full of stuff uh, that is going to impact your practice. Uh, and it doesn't. Don't, you don't need to scroll through the whole thing. Search, see what you're interested in. All right, let's dive into it because this is going to take a little bit of time, not too much time. Hopefully on your your way to work you can you can sip through this uh, this podcast, but we're going to talk about posture, spinal curves, and DJD. This is a big piece of the puzzle. Tim, let's take it away.
1: So we know that chiropractors are interested in curves. They're interested in posture. In fact, when we did our COP study a couple of years ago, looking at the most uh, common diagnoses, we surveyed 630,000 patients for different conditions and found out the number one diagnosis was Upper Cross Syndrome, and we know Upper Cross Syndrome plays a role in a number of things. Not only mechanical things, it has an impact on self-esteem. A study a couple years ago that said that there's a relationship between how far someone's shoulders are rolled forward and their self-confidence. We know that um, Upper Cross Syndrome and postural issues can actually impact sensory motor control and ANS system function. And we certainly know that things like upper cross syndrome and curvatures make a difference on neck pain, upper back pain, and even the rotator cuff.
0: It, well, remember that paper that was, uh, I think it was 2020, it was on asymptomatic rotator cuff tears. And this is a, this is a really interesting one. I, I talk about this one in my class a lot, that if you take an asymptomatic population uh, that's coming into a clinic and you MRI both shoulders what are the chances of them having an uh, asymptomatic rotator cuff tear? Now, the average age group was six, or, yeah, 65. And what they found is that if you have anything less than ideal posture, your chance of having an asymptomatic rotator cuff tear was over 50%. Here's the crazy stat, is that if you have ideal posture, your chance of having an asymptomatic rotator cuff tear was less than 4%. Now, you just talked about autonomic dysfunction, self-esteem, rotator cuff tears. I'm not going to sit here. And hopefully nobody's going to sit there and say, well, self-esteem is caused by your thoracic kyphosis. That's not true at all. You can't just fix a thoracic kyphosis and prove someone's confidence. Oh. There's, yeah, there's more stuff that goes into that. You know, I always think about um, ice cream and murders in the summer. You should, <laughs> you should see Dr. Myrtle's face. Where is he going with this conversation? Listen, if you look at... Ice cream sales and murders, they both go up as a percentage in the summer months. Does ice cream murder people? No. It's warmer weather. People are out more, out later at night. That is not causation. Clearly, sandals
1: are the reason for murders. (laughs) Exactly. Especially those sandals that you wear.
0: You know what? For those of you who also wear Birkenstocks, because they're comfortable, uh, send me a note. Um, I need constant uh, reaffirmation that these are okay to wear out in public. Or you could
1: just sit up with your posture and quit
0: rounding your shoulders. True, true. So we have to keep that in mind. Causation versus correlation. Just because we see a correlation does not mean there's a, a causation there. So getting back to the, the root of this conversation, um, is there a correlation between spinal curves and acute pain? Can you affect spinal curvature with treatment? Do these spinal curves even matter? You know, these are things that I've heard in school, I've seen in seminars, uh, and I decided to go back in the research. Let's figure this out. And when, and I guess I was assuming that going back historically, I was going to find that correlation because this had to come from somewhere. However, when you look, even back in the 70s, you find that, they were, they were studying this, is that 20% of asymptomatic populations had normal cervical lordosis? The other 80% didn't. In the 1980s, uh, they're finding narrowed spinal canal diameters, degeneration. However, they couldn't relate that to any clinical symptoms. So these uh, abnormal structural findings are presenting without people in clinical symptoms. And now what we're finding is that we're finding people with hyperlordosis in their cervical spines, and they have less frequent pain uh, than asymptomatic patients. So the vast majority of research in the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, um, their general assumption was that straightening of the spine, uh, accentuated curves are a part of an age-related process. It's independent of pain. And that if you truly have a normal, normal cervical eridosis, um in, in the case of the cervical spine, it only occurs in about 40% of the population. That means that we don't see normal curves in the vast majority of our population, um, and w- whether they have symptoms or not. So we're not seeing that correlation. We're not seeing, definitely, we're not seeing causation to pain. So, really, should we be worried about these things? And this is, a, this is kind of a sticky subject because there's a part of the manual therapist, chiropractic, physical therapy population that says, oh, you have a hypolordosis of your um, cervical spine, you have a hyperkyphosis of your thoracic spine. That's something that we have to treat. And I can tell you right now, if you want to dive back into the blogs of Cairo Up, you will find a firm stance by Brandon Steele that says we do not need to attack those things. They are not related to pain. However, stay tuned. We're going to take a little break from our sponsor. And at the end of this, Tim and I are going to have a friendly discussion on why I may have overstated the facts.
2: Can't get enough of the information you hear on our podcast? You will absolutely love our platform. Chiro Up helps thousands of chiropractors across the globe simplify the way they practice using our online evidence-based software. It's your one-stop shop for powerful clinical research, simplified patient education, and smart practice resources. Visit ChiroUp.com, try it out for free, and if you'd like to subscribe, use referral code Podcast fifteen for fifteen. Off twelve monthly billing cycles, no contract required. Offer valid on new subscriptions only.
0: All right, so that company sounds like they have their uh, their stuff together. But let's go back into the conversation. So, is there a correlation between a loss of spinal lordosis and acute clinical presentation? The overwhelming amount of research in the last fifty years says no that there is no correlation there. But I want to make a small correction, that there is a connection. There, there absolutely is. And it's the same as saying that all pain is due to a joint dysfunction. If you correct that joint dysfunction, everything goes away. It's the same thing that says that if you have a strengthening of the glutes, you're going to fix all lower extremity conditions. There's just more to the story. So I don't believe that just fixing a spinal curve is going to fix all problems. Just as much as I don't believe that uh, there's one magical manipulation that's going to fix all orthopedic conditions, uh, that these spinal curves are not the cause or perpetuator of pain. There is more to the story.
1: Absolutely. So I, I, I'm not a curved person either, necessarily, but I do think that anything de- that decentrates a joint has the potential to cause trouble. Certainly, we know that if you have forces that are acting on a joint that are causing compression of one side of the cartilage and stretch on the other side, that compressed side is going to become irritated and swollen and sticky and stuck, and we call those joint restrictions. That stretch side is going to have stretch of the muscles and ligaments and tendons, making them weaker, putting, putting stretch on the capsule. Making them more vulnerable. So anything, whether it be a hyperlordosis or hypolordosis, definitely has the ability to cause trouble one of the questions we have to answer is that the primary or the secondary? Because we know that all of these problems are pretty complex. There's musculoskeletal, there's metabolic, there's psychological issues that go with that patient's problem. And which one of those do we have to root out in order to get the patient better? What's the recipe for that that intervention? I think one of the things to really help our patients recognize is that curve and what we'll talk about later, that degeneration, is not the cause of the problem. It's something that is present and something that may need to be addressed, especially if it's a decentrating process. But most importantly, get active and don't use any diagnosis as a crutch to limit your future activity.
0: I love what you just said about it's not the cause, it's the repercussion. You know, that unfortunately, if you sit at a desk all day long and you get lazy, like all of us do, and you have that hyperkyphosis, chin forward position, um, that your body's going to mold into what you want to do. So it's not necessarily that hyperkyphosis is the problem. It's the result of all your hobbies, habits, sports, postures at work. And then that can cause symptoms. Or if you don't do enough of it, it cannot cause symptoms. What I tell my patients is that every tissue has a capacity to do work. And if you exceed that capacity, then unfortunately, things can get injured and become more painful. You have two options once you hit that point of injury. You can decrease the load on it, so decrease your activity, and that will bring that load underneath the capacity and you're going to heal. However, that requires you to do less of what you're wanting to do. The other option is to bring up the capacity of that tissue strengthen that tissue uh, help support it so in the case of spinal curves if you sit in a thoracic spine hyperkyphosis posture things are going to pay the price your neck's going to pay the price your shoulders are going to pay the price so you can decrease load and load and load until eventually you're not doing anything or you can now put them in a better position and strengthen the tissue around it
1: well that's a that's a great process in a simple well, thank way thank you i
0: appreciate
1: that <laughs> I'm going to put a mark on the wall. It's a blank wall right now, but we, um, we can use a tool to explain that to patients, and that's really a water glass of thinking that when you have symptoms is when your glass overflows. And we can do a couple of things. Either we can pull some water out of the glass, we can teach the patient how not to pour water into the glass, those physical and mental stressors that fill their glass, or we can teach them how to have a little bit taller glass. Now, that's a finite process. Your biceps can only be so strong, your joints can only be so stable. So, we wanna do both. We wanna try to increase the height of the glass so that it can have more capacity for your activities of daily living, but we also wanna say, how do we drain the glass? And I think as chiropractors, too often, We employ something, whether that be a trigger point therapy or a manipulation or a nutritional supplement or acupuncture. We drain that glass down a couple of millimeters below the edge and we throw a party because we've solved the patient's symptoms until something comes about and that something is life that drips back into the glass and now it overflows. Good chiropractors know how to decrease that water a little bit. Great chiropractors know how to drain that glass as much as possible. And that's where our recipes come in to say what are the things that we need to do and are spinal curves a part of that process that we need to get rid of? You know,
0: I've, I, you know, I've never had this, but... Patients don't come in. A unique thought? uh, uh, No, I was going to say patients. (laughs) Um, There's not many patients that come in and say, I want to get rid of this curve. Now, I will hear that with a Dauvinger hump sometimes, you know, can you improve that? Um, However, the one thing that I will hear in practice, which is going to be the second part of this conversation, is arthritis, is degeneration. Can that cause pain? Now, this is one that you will hear in practice. You know, is there a correlation between degeneration and acute clinical presentations? Uh, the answer is no, uh, but we'll discuss that in, um, in depth in the next couple sentences, or next couple minutes, um, and 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 and. Does the presentation of DJD affect your treatment? Now, your treatment could be manual therapy or manipulation, but we're going to kind of focus on manipulation for the purpose of this podcast. Now, to give you a little more credit, uh, I really enjoyed your blog on modic changes. So you just wrote this blog a couple months ago, and I believe you're answering the blog uh, in, as far as degen- does degeneration cause pain. Um, you wrote, not necessarily. Um, however, let's give them a longer answer on that.
1: Yeah, <laughs> there's always a longer answer when it's not necessarily. The, um, the, the, the quick modic refresher, first of all, that modic uh, changes are based on MRI signals. If they're a higher or low signal on T1 and T2 and whatever combination that is, that's going to tell us if you're modic type 1, 2, or 3. Modic type 1, this is a really simple process. Modic type 1 means that you have some edema. Could have come from trauma? Could have. There's speculation it could have come from infection, which might have some legitimacy because there was a study not too long ago that said antibiotics help with lower back pain, which seemed preposterous to me as a chiropractor, until you understand that, well, modic inflammation of type 1 might be infective. Type 2 changes means that that bony edema has now converted to fat, probably from an ischemic process over time. And then type 3 changes, as you might expect, is the accumulation of stress over time, which is sclerotic bony remodeling, or degeneration. This is our body's attempt to stabilize and repair the area. Now, some early studies confirmed a link. They said that if you have motic changes, you have back pain, especially nighttime pain and morning stiffness, and that's probably true, but there have been more papers since that point that said, eh, it may be a correlation, but it's certainly not a causation. That we can expect that type one changes, remember type one is bony edema. Well, edema and inflammation probably is going to cause discomfort. So type one possesses an inherent potential to cause some discomfort. But a lot of studies have come out saying maybe not for type 2 and type 3. There's a study that said that modic changes are not associated with any clinic, clinically significant back pain or disability. Another study that said the findings are inconsistent. And that other studies said that we can't draw conclusions based upon the current evidence. So do modic changes cause correlate with pain? Probably so. Degeneration correlates in that it had the same trigger, but that degeneration wasn't necessarily the trigger for the pain. Dysfunction is the trigger for pain, and dysfunction is the trigger for degeneration. Pain doesn't cause degeneration, and degeneration doesn't cause pain. So think of it as a triangle with dysfunction at the top and pain and degeneration down at the bases. The problem comes from the top down, not from the bottom across.
0: Yeah, there's a, uh, one of the talks that we do um, on the road is on chronic pain. And one of the, the, the words that I use, the, 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 uh, the opening slides, is that in the absence of red flags and trauma, you cannot relate structure to pain. And you usually have a couple people leave the room at that point.
1: And then- uh, <laughs> The rest of them wait about 10 or 15 well, minutes.
0: Well, yeah, that's the crazy part is the next sentence offends more people. And it is structure in the absence of red flags um, and trauma. You can't relate to function. Now, think about that. Now, here's the deal. If you look at that, what do you and I do all day long? We look at function, which is orthopedic testing and range of motion in our physical exam, and pain, you know, where the patient is. So unfortunately, when you look at the research, you can't draw those correlations, but you can. That's all part of the clinical story. So you can't look at an arthritic hip on an x-ray and say you have pain in your hip when you look at the research, but is that clinically relevant information? Yes, when you can marry that to where their pain is, to doing the right orthopedic test, um, and how things are presenting. So uh, what I'd like to get around is this black and white, this causes this. It's like saying that one orthopedic test is positive for a specific diagnosis. We know that never works. Uh, It takes a constellation of symptoms married with a physical exam, uh, maybe with some imaging to determine all the things that you and I need to attack with that patient. And then then don't do all those in one day. Um, Create a hit list. You know, the most popular things or most uh, uh, important things to correct with that patient. So uh, let's get into the degenerative findings because you and I have patients with arthritis. It is what it is. Uh, we have a lot of patients with arthritis. And I think that the, the initial piece of this comes down to if they know they have arthritis. Listen, if there's a 60-year-old walking in your room, they've got arthritis. They may not know it. Um, however, they probably do. Age-related changes. Uh, the people that come in with x-rays or MRIs, MRIs and motor changes, x-rays with uh, arthritic changes, they have been educated that that arthritis is causing their pain and this is a big problem because one it probably isn't and two i don't know how to get rid of arthritis tim do you have a magical you know are you have your patient drink cherry juice to get rid of that yeah arthritis? i'm
1: gonna hold out on that until the next podcast though for the magical potion to get rid of arthritis yeah. but uh, we know that it's it's complex that we've got to do a number of things that if it's in an inflammatory stage the type 1 modic we probably do need to relieve some inflammation But more importantly, we need to restore function, that we've gotta get the mechanics, get rid of the compressive forces, and re-centralize that joint so that it can maintain the optimal surface relationship throughout its range of motion. We know there are lots of things that need to happen in that process absolutely at the core is balancing the muscle tone that if somebody has upper cross syndrome posture, we can manipulate their neck each day. And we're probably going to need to manipulate their neck each day. If we can help that patient change that posture to strengthen their scapular stabilizers, stretch out their traps and their pecs, getting them and becoming an active participant in their recovery there's a much better chance that our manipulation would work and manipulation is the other half of that formula that absolutely the joints need to move we can't be doing just myofascial release and rehab and exercise that may not get the joint functional again so spinal manipulation we know there are multiple studies proving the benefit in the treatment of chronic neck and back pain and we know that joint dysfunction is really a risk factor that if a joint doesn't move the way that it should it's probably going to degenerate if we spinal manipulation, that's going to restore joint function. It's going to decrease pain, improve mobility, and help that patient with potential future consequences of degeneration. Studies have shown that manipulation does decrease the chance of progressive chronic degeneration and pain in our neck and back pain patients. So we have this incredible tool. One of the things that we need to consider, though, is that the utility of that tool is somewhat inversely proportionate to the degree of degeneration. That manipulation is a great tool to help minimize the chance of degeneration it's a great tool to manage mild and moderate degeneration But as that degeneration becomes more severe, now we start to see some instability. Think of degenerative spondylolisthesis. If you have that cushion thinning down in between the two building blocks, they start to become sloppy. Well, as things get sloppy and the canal narrows, the neuroforamen narrows, and you have instability, maybe putting more mobility into that segment is not the answer. It's not that its neighbors wouldn't appreciate it, but that segment probably wouldn't. So as degeneration progresses, may be less useful than than it is in the earlier stages I'm, I'm
0: so glad you brought that up and that actually was not really a part of our our the, the, the outline that i put together but i think that's probably the biggest topic of this podcast is that joints that are already moving a little bit too much are already have a little bit of um a hypermobility um in that joint due to the lack of stability whether it's inherent within the joint or the, the muscles on the outside um, should we be manipulating it? And I, te- I see that a lot with the shoulders that people always want to say, oh, you have pain here. How do you manipulate it and get to feel better? Well, that joint's already moving a little bit too much. We probably should be putting in more uh, motion into that joint.
1: Yeah. And you, you said that it's uh, one of the more important points of the podcast. I think it's one of the more important points of our professional careers that I don't know about you, but I find myself too often just assuming because a joint is tender and there's some muscle hypertonicity, it probably needs to be manipulated. We have this incredible hammer called spinal manipulation that fixes so many things and sometimes i find myself getting lazy and using that hammer too much and not doing a little deeper work to dig and say well just because that joint's tender and there's muscle hypertonicity doesn't mean that it's hyper hypomobile it could be hypermobile and especially in the lumbar spine lumbar spine hypermobility and segmental instability is a big problem one of the tools that you can use to help identify those patients, there are four really, really useful tests to identify spinal instability. If you dive into the Chiroa protocol for lumbar segmental instability, it'll detail those tests. And it's one of those things that if you've treated a patient three or four times and it seems like they have a simple joint dysfunction, well, they might, but it might not be hypomobility. It might be hypermobility, especially if they're young and flexible. So check out that protocol, and it'll be a game changer for those those times that it's not a joint that's not moving enough. It's already moving too much, so we need to add stability. And I'm not uh, saying this because I have all those answers. I'm saying it because it's something that I personally forget on a regular basis.
0: Well, I think you pointed it out that you also are lazy. Those are your own <laughs> words you said about 30 <laughs> seconds
1: ago, but but I'm
0: honest too. Uh, no, I, I I think what I think what the beauty of that is is you know really going after that short-term versus long-term resolution of pain because there's not many patients that walk out of my office that feel worse regardless of their diagnosis you start moving tissue around use movement and they're going to feel better and have improved range of motion at the end of that visit the question is, is are you really doing anything for them so if you have a joint that's already moving too much then manipulation may still provide short term relief because of the mechanoreception. However, um, if you're really looking for long term relief, if you find joints that are not moving enough, then manipulation is great to get joints moving. And then, most importantly, find the rehab to keep that joint moving in purposeful ranges of motion. So, uh, and I, I, I always get a little queasy about doing this. Um, however, if, and this is a big if, if we assume that manipulation is just pulling joints apart. So let's, let's boil it down to just one little piece. And we say that manipulation does this. Now, the key part of this that the patients don't understand and really the rest of science doesn't understand is that we can do this maneuver called manipulation without exceeding the anatomical limits of the joint. Now, this goes against that historical model of you take a joint to its end range, then you go fast and through that end range that I think it was called the anatomic barrier into the periophysiological space that nobody understands what that is, and now you get popping. But this is a big thing because that Evans and Breen paper came out and says there is a couple things that, I shouldn't say we, I I should say I, um, I did not know when I was in school is that well, take, let me just show this to you guys. Take your index finger and pull it apart. You know, So pull your own finger. Uh, it may pop. It may not pop. However, one thing you will see is you'll see a gap in that space because that periphysiological space is not past the anatomic limits. It just means you can't do that yourself. It is a space created within normal capsular range of motion. Uh, that space, uh, unfortunately, um, you can't do yourself. Sometimes you can move and flex and you hear pops every once in a while. Um, but what we do as chiropractors is that if we can take the joint and expose it uh, so it doesn't have a lot of extra stresses on it, meaning the ligaments and capsules and tendons, and we can get that into a position where it can the joints can be pulled apart, this doesn't happen at end range. That's why when, when you look at manipulation of the cervical spine, we don't take patients to end range. That's why we don't have adverse effects with treatment is that if we can really take that manipulation setup and we can be Jedi's at understanding how to get joints to move, we don't have to get them to end range. In fact, we can find positions and we can preload them in places where they're not at end range, which is actually going to be easier on us and them Help pull those joint surfaces apart. So, I I really think this is a a big take home point. They one, understand what manipulation is, and two, probably more of the art as compared to the science of what we do. Um, And the art is understanding what to manipulate. And when not to manipulate, um, I could probably teach any person how to manipulate. Give me a month of you know being in my office and teaching them, and if they're athletic and they have good hand-eye coordination, we could teach anyone to manipulate. Um, knowing when to manipulate and being great at manipulation uh, takes people like you and I.
1: Yeah, a quick note just dropped in by Becky, our uh, Cairo Up sales rep. She said that she's probably going to have better success if you quit mentioning pull my finger. So just a (laughs) a note in the future.
0: It works with my kids. (laughs) so,
1: So practice pearls on to one of the last sections of this podcast, and it talks about how to engage our team members. And one of the things that we do are one-to-one discussions. So uh, we just finished an interview immediately prior to this, and the interviewee is looking for a new job because she had no interaction. She
0: left in tears.
1: (laughs) We hope she sticks around for a long time. But she had no interaction with her current employer, that she was getting no feedback. So one of the things that we want to make sure that we're doing well is to make sure that we're providing feedback not just the the feedback for how you're doing for your job on a yearly evaluation but also what are the resources you need to do your job better do you have all the tools do you have all the knowledge is there anything that we can do to improve that environment so one-to-one discussions we schedule them uh, once a month and we meet with the employee for a short period of time they'll usually take 15 to 30 minutes and you'll sit down in a private space, make sure that they have the ability to talk candidly, that all of your other staff is not in the same room at the same time. You'll talk about their their career aspirations. You'll be able to gain valuable insights as to their feedback and also to build trust, to let them know that this door is open, and not just by by the meaning of saying my door is always open, but your door is open, and you've invited them in. Your team members have lots and lots of good ideas that could help your practice. They're the first line that sees problems with everything, and unfortunately we all get busy, and we forget to acknowledge that everybody else has solutions too allowing them to help share those solutions and make sure that you're providing solutions for them or helping them find solutions for their problems everybody has a deep desire to do a good job we want to make sure we give them the best opportunity to relay that yeah and i think that on the other end you know just building
0: Uh, some appreciation and showing that appreciation because it really is going to boost morale for your employees uh, and motivate them to do a better job for the company. Not necessarily for you, but uh, kind of understanding where they fit and that they are making a difference. This has also been powerful for problem prevention, that if you can address any kind of issues or challenges that employees having proactively it's going to make a big difference
1: so your task after this podcast is just schedule it block an afternoon or a morning that you have some time make sure that you give everybody adequate time if you need an outline for what that would look like by all means email us brandon at cairo up or tim at cairo up and we'll shen- send you the outline that we use for these discussions but just do it it's the uh, the slogan that you hear so often you don't have to put a ton of thought into it this is an open door this is the employees meeting and this is not an annual review that you have to put a lot of work into. Just do it and watch the good things that happen. Speaking of new good things that are happening, Dr. Steele, tell us about what's happening in Cairo Up. Oh, it's been a fun six weeks. Um, for those of
0: you who know, we uh, we added Michael Braccio to our team. And um, he was tasked with a lot of fun stuff. But one of those, uh, really, cha- he challenged us. and re- And you guys have challenged us with getting more protocols out there. Now, a protocol is not... Tim and Brandon and now Michael sitting down and kind of hashing out what do we think our favorite exercises are uh, it's a big task. Um, it's hours, uh, weeks of working on the research and writing the reviews. So, and, and we're not changing that at all. However, we created ten light protocols, uh, everything from hip labral lesions to gastroc strains to ACL sprains. Uh, we have ten new protocols that just dropped that are going to go through and allow you to make more diagnoses and deliver those exercises to your patients immediately, uh, and also include some new treatments uh, in there that I think are important. And I I tell you what i learned a couple new hip examinations for the labral lesion that i never knew and now i'm using in practice
1: yeah so the light protocol is great because it has all the assets that you need including the ability to deliver that information to patients in that condition report within a few seconds Been the only thing that we're skipping is that exhaustive literature review that's the one that really takes a lot of time but it has all the other research backing we're on a mission to add 40 light protocols yet this year uh, and we're on track to do that at present. If you have a condition in Cairo Up that you say I wish this was there, by all means shoot it to us. We have a request form, or you can email us again, Tim at Cairo Up or Brandon at Cairo Up. We'll make sure that it's on the list and we'll prioritize it based on popularity. So we've been able to add a lot of tests and exercises, treatments. This month we've added some infographic on rehab for throwers. That's from Dr. Brockio and it's in the forms library. A new ADL on a diet for gout. Your patients who have a gouty flare-up, which should they be doing and not doing we've put out a couple of micro webinars we've got a webinar on hip abductor weakness and lower cross syndrome in addition to the blogs and this podcast and speaking of this podcast Thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, uh, we would encourage you to hit that follow button so that you don't miss an episode. By following, you'll be the first to know when we release new content and you'll have access to our entire library of future episodes. We are grateful that you take the time to listen to this podcast. We would welcome your input as to how to make it better in the future. We are proud to be on the same team of helping to make our profession the undeniable best choice for patients and payers alike. Thanks for listening.
2: Hey, thanks for listening. To access more information, visit CairoUp.com. You can sign up for a 14-day trial. Use referral code PODCAST15 for a special discount after your trial. Offer valid on new subscriptions only.